This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. David Bernhardt, a native of Rifle, Colorado, is President Trump's pick to lead the Department of Interior. If confirmed by the Republican-controlled Senate, he'll succeed Ryan Zinke, who resigned in December. Bernhardt was already Zinke's number two. For more on the man, we've called Juliet Alperin, senior national affairs reporter for The Washington Post, who has covered Bernhardt. And Juliet, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. Among the expected yes votes in the Senate, we can count Republican Cory Gardner. He issued a statement Monday saying Bernhardt's nomination is fantastic news for Colorado. I guess, first off, is there any real chance Bernhardt wouldn't be confirmed? It's highly unlikely, given the fact that Republicans expanded their margin in the Senate as a result of the midterm elections. So certainly there's there's a conceivable way that Democrats could delay consideration of the nomination. Um, but it seems highly likely that he would be confirmed. Meanwhile, over in the House, of course, Democrats now have control. And you reported that the chair of the House's Natural Resource Committee, Raul Grijalva of New Mexico, has already indicated that he intends to call Bernhardt before his panel to testify about some of the department's policy decisions. Uh, How much trouble could the Democratic-controlled House make? Well, certainly they can, you know, depending on how open they are to issuing subpoenas, they could, uh, you know, they could ask some probing questions, as could, for example, Senate Democrats on the Energy and and Natural Resources Committee. So this does provide an opportunity for Democrats to get more insight into how David Bernhardt has helped run the department since joining it a year and a half ago and and could lead to certainly some, some revelations about what's been happening behind the scenes at Interior. What specifically are they interested, do you think, in knowing? They're very interested in, for example, how the department, including David Bernhardt, work to shrink two national monuments in southern Utah, and what's the role that, for example, industry played in pushing for the reduction in these boundaries. This is Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and Bears Ears National Monument. Um, uh, so that's that's one example. They will likely look at ha- whether there's been censorship of science in different agencies, whether it's the National Park Service or others. Um, they will use this opportunity to try to get as much information as they can about, for example, the how the decision to expand offshore oil drilling off America's coast, including off the Atlantic coast, was done. So all of all of these issues will be subject to some scrutiny now. You write about Bernhardt's creativity in keeping the Department of Interior running to some extent during the shutdown. Uh, that applies to drilling permits, by the way, but also to national parks. Just briefly explain that for us. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think people would say, regardless of whether they agree or disagree with David Bernhardt, is he's incredibly inventive and and uh, creative when it comes to looking at the law and seeing what are the boundaries that he can get up to when he's trying to advance policies. So, for example, when they decide when the Republicans decided to keep national parks open and accessible during the budget shutdown, and it created all these problems, including trash piling up, you know, damage to the. Resources 
resources and things like that, David Bernhardt came up with this idea, working with colleagues, to allow some of the most popular parks to tap their fees and use money that, sh- that normally would have gone to long-term infrastructure and maintenance projects, but again, were really used as a stopgap measure uh, to keep the parks running. And so that's an example of how he knows the different levers of power uh, and how to exercise them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about President Trump's pick to lead the Department of Interior. That's David Bernhardt. He's a Colorado native. And joining us from Washington is Juliet Alprin of The Washington Post, who has covered uh, Bernhardt uh, extensively. Uh, the Mountain Pact, a nonprofit comprised of communities across the West, issued a statement on Bernhardt's nomination. Executive Director Anna Peterson said, quote, We have been deeply troubled by Bernhardt and the Trump administration's actions and directions on public lands, climate, and many conservation issues. Uh, we've addressed some of that with the Democrats' concern in the Senate and the House, but on climate in particular, what do we know about Bernhardt's view of climate change, which has huge implications for wildfire, drought, industries like agriculture and tourism in the West? That's a great question. So I asked him directly about this when I was writing a profile of him last year, and he had a very interesting answer on this front, which is that he did not question that humans were playing some role in driving climate, recent climate change. And so in that way, you know, he, he differs from the president. But what was fascinating is I asked him specifically what obligation did he view Interior as having in addressing the issue of, of climate change? Mm. And his response was that he had asked the lawyers at Interior to look into this, and they had told him that his only obligation was, in his words, to make, quote, one guy, end quote, available to advise the Energy Department on an analysis that it does periodically of the state of climate change. He said that Congress, in its infinite wisdom, in his words, had not required Interior to do anything in terms of curbing greenhouse gas emissions, which is an interesting comment, given that Interior oversees oil and gas drilling, both on federal land and in federal waters. So his view is that the, that legally, Interior is not obligated to do anything to curb the nation's carbon output. Uh, which would be in direct conflict with many of the people who work at Interior, presumably. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that's, that's not a view that's shared by many of the scientists or policymakers who are career officials who work in Interior. So that will be, be one area of potential tension. Now, it's interesting. You reported that President Trump was going to nominate someone else. Uh, that might have been former Congresswoman Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming. But uh, Bernhardt made it known that he might leave if he didn't get the top job. Uh, why do you think Trump... Uh, in this case, did not stick to his guns on this. It was clear that the White House has always been interested in, in possibly tapping David Bernhardt for this post. Initially, he had expressed reservations. He was worried about how much time he would spend away from his family and, and, and other issues. And so initially, even though he was a front runner, he had kind of distanced himself from the idea of taking this position. But then over time, they continued to keep the conversation going. And when it became clear that the president was, in fact, likely to tap Cynthia Lummis, who is extremely conservative, he met with Lummis last month in the Oval Office. At that point, 
David Bernhardt made it clear that if, if the president wanted to go that way, he could, but there would have to be a new deputy secretary. And at that point, most people within the White House recognize the critical role that David Bernhardt has played in championing the administration's agenda and executing the policies it wants. And so at that point, they shifted course. Julie, before we go, it was reported last summer that the Bureau of Land Management, which is under Interior, would be moving its headquarters west. Uh, among the possibilities are cities in Utah and here in Colorado, places like Montrose and Grand Junction vying for this headquarters. Any idea what the latest is on those discussions and whether perhaps Bernhardt's nomination, he's a Westerner, uh, means that indeed the BLM is headed to Colorado? Well, while this is something that both Ryan Zinke supported and David Bernhardt certainly supported and worked on as deputy secretary, I think it's, it's highly unlikely that such a major reorganization would happen, particularly given the fact that Democrats control the House at this point. They've raised concerns that this reorganization actually would take time and resources and is a distraction from the work of Interior. There are plenty of presidents who have tried to reorganize the government in the past, including Barack Obama, who have failed in that quest. And so while certainly David Bernhardt will support that initiative, whether or not it comes to pass in the next two years is unclear. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate your reporting. You're very welcome. Julianne Alperin of The Washington Post on news that President Trump will nominate David Bernhardt, a native of Rifle, Colorado, to become Secretary of the Interior. What can we learn from the places in Colorado where youth suicide is especially high? A team crisscrossed the state to find out, studying four counties that have been hard hit. I should say the youth suicide rate in general in Colorado is one of the highest in the country. Shannon Breitzman was a member of this team. Shannon, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So this work focused on Mesa County around the city of Grand Junction, La Plata County, which includes Durango, El Paso County, that's Colorado Springs, and farther south Pueblo County. Did you have an epiphany in this work? Two things really struck me. One is the amount of pressure that kids feel and the lack of connection they feel to adults. We talked to a lot of kids who felt like they couldn't fail and they didn't know how to fail. And they felt like a lot of times adults will swoop in and try to fix everything and make everything all right so that they don't fail. Hmm. Is that a version of like... Helicopter parenting? Yes. Yeah. In fact, one kid called it a bulldozer parent. So in order to make sure that everything is perfect and um, and that they don't have to experience anything bad, a bulldozer parent will come in and try to fix everything or... Or clear the path so there are no obstacles in the way. Right. That was an observation from a young person. Yes. And yet you report that kids feel a lack of connection to adults. In the aftermath of some of these suicides, the kids really wanted to connect with adults that they felt a natural connection to. And what was happening is the schools, in order to be careful and and delicate around the issue, would set up counselors. They would bring in a crisis team, set up counselors in the cafeteria or the gym, and invite kids to go talk to those counselors. The counselors the kids may have never met. Yeah, most of them had never met them. Interesting. And so they really wanted to connect with the teachers or or other adults in the school setting that they felt 
comfortable with. A rapport with. Yeah. And so that was one way that we saw that. The other way is that a lot of times the kids feel like they're dealing with really complicated adult things. And adults in their lives are not comfortable talking with them about those things. Like? Well, mental health being one, uh, sexuality being another, uh, substance use, you know, experiences with friends. I think one kid said something to the effect of there's a lot of space between adults and kids. What I guess is happening is that adults feel uncomfortable and they don't feel like they know the the right answers when something this horrible and traumatic has happened. And what we heard from the young people is it's okay if adults don't know the right answer. There may mm. not be a right answer. Just sit with us and be with us in our pain and our confusion. And it's okay if you say, I don't know what to do, but I'm here for you. So this report mentions what's called a lack of resilience among mm-hmm. teens. And I think this speaks to the earlier point about kids being perhaps overprotected, not taught to fail. Right. Say just a bit more about resilience. It's a word I just hear everywhere now, along with like the word grit. Yep. That kids should have grit. What does that mean? Right. How does it relate to youth suicide? In this pressure to be successful and to put forward your best self. And they have that pressure in school settings. They have it in their activities after school, sports and music and whatever those are. And they have it on social media. Hmm. And as adults, we model that too, right? We only want to put our best selves forward. We don't show our real selves. And so what we're teaching kids is that they can't show their real selves. They can't make a mistake. They think that when they make a mistake, it's going to follow them forever. And when we swoop in, we don't allow them the chance to see that when they make mistakes, they can learn from them and they're okay. Is what you heard then that suicide for some kids is a more palatable option than, say, failure at school or something? Yeah, we did hear that. And as shocking as that is, for many of the kids that we talked to, suicide was higher sort of on their list of options than admitting that they failed at something or that they had made a mistake. And so they would rather die by suicide than deal with a mistake or failure. My goodness. And what are what are the pressures that we're talking about? Let's be specific. Well, you know, we heard a lot of kids talk about pressures academically, getting good enough grades to get into a good school and a lot of pressure coming from adults in that arena. But we also heard kids refer to their activities and and even parents referred to this, too. I think one parent talked about, well, the kids have to be Olympic level athletes, you know, to um, compete here. And so and they were, of course, being funny, but that's the pressure that kids feel as well. But that doesn't feel like a new pressure to me. It's not that it's a new pressure. I think it's the level of that pressure. But I also think it has something to do with just how public our lives are now. You know, going back to social media and what we're putting on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and and this idea that what you put out there has to be nothing less than perfect. And if you do make a mistake for young people, it's out there forever, or at least it feels like it is once somebody has posted something that's embarrassing or a mistake on, on any of those social media platforms. I wonder about the communities themselves. It occurs to me that in Pueblo, for instance, in Grand Junction in particular, and Colorado Springs, you have economies that have been up and down Mm -hmm. over the years. The oil and gas boom and bust on the Western Slope, for instance, Colorado Springs economy and Pueblo's economy has expanded and contracted. To what extent do you think those economic concerns affect not just the parents who may 
lose a job or have a low wage, but the, the kids. Yeah, I mean, I, we definitely saw an impact there. I think probably the biggest impact is just on the availability of pro-social sorts of activities for kids. Pro-social activities, mm-hmm. like good hangouts. Good hangouts, opportunities to participate in sports that aren't very expensive. So club sports um, in one of the communities, you know, if you really weren't involved in club sports, which cost a lot of money, then you you didn't make the team at your school. Um, only the best kids made the team at the school, and those were the kids who could play year-round in a club sport. In Mesa County, there's no recreation center. So there's no recreational sports for kids to be involved in if they can't be in club sports or school sports. So it's just that's just one example of the economy impacts what's available in the community for kids. How much do you think, though, that kids reflect the stresses in their home? Oh, I think they absolutely reflect the stress in their home. You know, one of the, the things that really stood out to us is all of these communities and across Colorado, really, we, we have an adult suicide issue. <laughs> and primarily working age men uh, make up the highest numbers and rates. And so the youth suicide issue is not separate from the adult suicide issue. Mm. These kids see that that is something that's happening in their community, something that's happening to in their families, and and it becomes, unfortunately, a viable option. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Shannon Breitzman helped put together a new study of youth suicide in Colorado at the request of the previous state attorney general. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, you can call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Payday lenders are severely restricted in the interest rates they can charge under a state law that took effect this month. Voters approved the measure last November. CPR's Mike Lamp spoke with Alex Horowitz, who guides research for Pew's consumer finance projects, about what's likely to happen now. In 15 other states that have a similar law in the books, there are no payday loan stores. So all the uh, stores that offer payday loans in Colorado today will cease doing so, and they will close. There are stores that offer prepaid cards or check cashing or uh, their pawn shops, and they'll continue operating, offering those other products, but there won't be payday loans anymore in Colorado. So the strictly payday loan uh, operations will disappear. You're very um, unambiguous about that. That's what's going to happen. Yes, that's what's happened in the other 15 states that have a similar law in the books. And that's the result of limiting interest rates to 36 percent. How is it not possible to earn a profit lending money at 36 percent? I mean, your, your credit cards don't charge that much. Your car loan is you know, much less than that. Uh, but it will put payday lenders out of business. So these loans are small. They're capped at $500. And the cost of operating uh, a retail establishment is the same as the cost of operating any other store, but they uh, only offer a small number of products, and the overhead is a big piece of the puzzle. So Colorado already had um, a pretty thoroughly regulated payday lending system, more so than in other states. Uh, Was there some further problem that this new law was trying to address? Well, of the 35 states with payday lending prior to this ballot initiative, Colorado had the lowest prices, the uh, most affordable payments, and gave borrowers up to six months to repay. But their loans still had high rates. So that's the problem that the ballot initiative was trying to address, and it will succeed in doing that. By putting the payday lenders completely out of business. That's right, which does not, um, you know, is not necessarily a bad thing. The research is mixed 
on whether it's better to eliminate lending like this or to have it in a heavily regulated market with uh, strong consumer protections like Colorado had prior to the ballot initiative. So the payday loan shops disappear, but uh, the people who had been their customers are still people that sometimes need to get uh, their hands on some cash fairly quickly. What options will they have now? So we've spoken with payday loan borrowers in other states after stores closed, and we've surveyed them nationally as well. And borrowers do things when loans are unavailable, like uh, use pawn shops or overdraft their checking accounts, borrow from family or friends. They may be able to cut back on expenses. Some people are um, unlikely to be able to borrow, and so they may do without, which can either be better or worse, depending on what their other options are. So the research doesn't um, doesn't definitively say one way or the other whether the ballot initiative will be net positive or net negative for borrowers. It's The research is mixed, but if the goal was to eliminate high-rate loans, the ballot initiative um, will do that. And some borrowers are going to look for other options. Uh, credit unions and banks, for the most part, don't offer loans like this, even at a 36% all-in rate. So that means on a $400 three-month loan, we're talking about $24. At that price, banks and credit unions are not profitable either. But there may be um, they may be able to, to offer these loans anyway because they're not generally covered by state law or they can charge um, certain fees that don't show up in the interest rate. It sounds like it's not the case that when in other states, as you've seen, uh, the payday loan operations disappear, then kind of conventional banks kind of step up and fill what is now uh, an unmet need for these short-term loans. No, that's right. So in states where payday lenders have closed because of a rate cap like this, banks and credit unions have not um, substantially increased their offerings of small loans. But if federal regulators give banks and credit unions some guidelines that enable them to offer small loans profitably, it looks like they're going to do that. How quickly do you uh, foresee the payday loan shops in Colorado disappearing now that this law is taking effect? They'll stop lending immediately, and they will close once they have uh, collected on on the loans outstanding. So not very long then? That's correct. They'll all be closed within a, sh- in a short period of time, except for the ones that offer other products, such as doing check cashing or doing uh, pawn loans. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. CPR's Mike Lamp speaking with Alex Horowitz. Horowitz leads research for Pew's Consumer Finance Project. The backers of Colorado's payday lending law have launched an online guide for consumers with other options for borrowing money. We have a link to that at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On Monday, 96-year-old Leela Morrison of Windsor received the French Legion of Honor Medal. En vertu des pouvoirs qui me sont conférés, je vous fais chevalier dans l'ordre de la Légion d'honneur. It recognizes Morrison for her service during World War II. She was a U.S. Army combat nurse who treated wounded soldiers across Western Europe. For years, she says it was too painful to talk about the horrors she witnessed. But these days, she hopes people hear her story and understand the high price of freedom. We spoke last March about her service. And Leela, welcome to the program. Thank you. You grew up in Blue Ridge, Georgia, one of seven siblings. When did you know you wanted to be a nurse? Oh, I think I was just born to be a nurse. And I was happy all through my career, never sorry that I was a nurse. Never sorry. You graduated from nursing school in 1943, 
at age 22 and uh, shortly after volunteered to be a nurse for the U.S. Army. Right. Why? Well, I was young and uh, single, and my mother died before I remember, and my father had died when I was 20. And even though I had wonderful siblings, I just felt like I could go and it would be easier not having a mother and dad worrying about you. Hmm. What was training like to be a part of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps? Well, it was really different than anything I'd ever been through. And by the way, I had basic training right here in Denver at Larry Field. Oh, I see. You've come full circle by being in Colorado. Yes. And, uh, oh, we had to learn to salute and march and the regulations of the Army, which I was completely ignorant of before. But it, it was a lot of fun. We laughed uh, because we'd do things wrong. We had a sergeant that was teaching us how to march and right face, left face, you know, about face. Yeah. And we didn't know what that meant. And sometimes if he said right face, maybe I did a left one. And I'd be looking at the one behind me right in the face, and it would be so funny. I didn't realize that nurses in the Army learned all that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were assigned to the 118th Evacuation Hospital. This is a mobile medical unit that provided emergency care in the field. That's right. You were first sent to England, eventually yes. to Normandy, France, mm-hmm. arriving not too long after the D-Day attack there. Yep. What was on your mind when you arrived in Normandy? I realized and had read a lot about the boys that first landed there, you know, on June the 6th. Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. And as we walked in that sand up Normandy, I couldn't help but think of all the boys, young boys that had given their lives. And I just felt like I was on sacred land walking across where those fellows had walked and given their all. It was during the Battle of the Bulge, which began in December 1944, that you had your first real patience in in the theater of war. This was Nazi Germany's final attack on the Western Front, Mm -hmm. a surprise assault on the Allied forces in the Ardennes Forest, Mm -hmm. and it was one of the bloodiest and most brutal battles of the war, Yes, with soldiers trying to hold off a German advance in freezing temperatures. Well, we were, like you said, a mobile unit. We lived in tents the whole time we were there, and our hospital was in tents. And how often would that move? We moved often as our lines would move, and uh, only two times we had to fall back because we went too close, and they said, oh, you nurses can't be up this close. Go back. We can't protect you here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. And and, and what do you remember about treating those soldiers? See, I was in the shock and pre-op tent. We only took care of emergencies, and... uh, We could not give them whole blood because at that time they had no means of preserving whole blood and get it clear over there. What could you administer? Plasma. Plasma. That was the next best thing. And we gave many, many units of plasma. 
And this speaks to the shock that they're in. Yes. A lot of them lost a lot of blood. You couldn't send them to surgery in shock. They had to be out of that. If that unit was moving so often, Mm -hmm. and you had patients who couldn't move, Mm -hmm. how did you move a, a whole sort of mobile hospital well, we had 250 uh, regular soldiers assigned to us, and that's what they did. But they so, would have to move the patients, too. Oh, no. 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 We waited till maybe we'd be there two or three days, maybe a week, and uh, we wouldn't have sent them back unless we knew they could make it. Okay, so... Uh, you, you sort of clear out that class of soldiers, and then you pick up and move on. Yes. Got it. What kinds of injuries do you remember? It would be everything from shots through the head, through the body, through the legs. And by the way, I'd, out of the Battle of the Bulge, we had many frostbites. It was the coldest winter that it had in 50 years there. And... Uh, Many fellows lost their limbs from the frostbite. Mm. How scared were they when they got to you? Oh, they didn't seem scared at all. They would tell us about home and about the things they were missing and how anxious they were to get back to things. And one that I remember in particular uh, whipped out his billfold and showed me a picture of a little boy, three years old, And he said, this is my son, and I've never seen him. Oh, he'd been born after he was deployed. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Did that young man make it? Do you remember? You know, that was one disadvantage we had, being in emergency only. We never knew how they turned out. How did you, if you did, try to comfort the soldiers as you treated them? Well, you tried to be cheerful, tried to have a smile on your face. We would take time to look at their pictures and listen to them a little. Were they excited to see a woman? Oh, yes. They were very excited, and they worried about us. They said, oh, you girls shouldn't be up this far. You're far too close to the front, you know. You shouldn't be here. And we'd reassure them we were okay. (laughs) You'd reassure them. Yeah. Do you remember close calls? We were fortunate. They never bombed our hospital. Mm. We had a great big red cross on the top of each of our tents. And that was, at least for you, that was honored, apparently. Well, that was telling the enemy we were uh, mad and we, we were unarmed. Would you ever treat enemy soldiers? Yes, We had some. Tell me about that. Well, I did feel a little funny treating them, but you know they're God's creation too, and maybe they're there because they had to be. Uh, I've I've looked at many of the prisoners, and I would think one-on-one, I know we could be good friends. I know that enemy likes a nice home. He likes a full stomach. He likes a nice, clean bed at night, just like I do and you do. So I had empathy for them, too. So these are prisoners of war that had been captured by the U.S. Boy, you're making me tear up on that one, Uh Layla. (laughs) I'm sorry. Well, no, don't be sorry. You want the truth, though. I do want the truth. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and our guest is World War II Army nurse Leela Morrison of Windsor. She crisscrossed Europe with a mobile hospital unit treating soldiers on the front lines. In April 1945, Morrison experienced something she still grapples with today, her visit to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany just after its liberation. More than 50,000 people were murdered there. A warning that this part of the discussion may be disturbing. We arrived in Weimar. See, it was just outside Weimar, Germany. And uh, they told us Buchenwald was there. We, we, we were unaware of that. And uh, they said, uh, this hospital unit will have to go down there in the morning and help out. So the next morning we were ready to go and they called us and said, no, you nurses can't come. The doctors were there, and they said, conditions are so deplorable, we can't let you nurses come in here. What were they afraid of with you going in? Seeing the inside of that concentration camp. I think they were just trying to save us some heartache. Uh-huh. That was where uh, they did so many... Um, in the laboratory there. Medical did, experiments? Uh-huh. Many of them. Oh, my. And with drugs and everything. So they had cleared the bodies away yes, before you arrived. they had. So we went down the next day. What do you remember seeing when you arrived? A lot of horror. A lot. Something you'll never forget. And uh, introduced us to a man from Czechoslovakia. And he had been a prisoner there for quite a while. And he took us all through, even underground. Uh, the thing that impressed me so much, I think, was the crematory. Uh, it was up on a little incline. And it was a building, a brick building. He showed us the window where they told the prisoners to uh, take the clothes off and slide down this slide into the basement. And uh, there was a big stick there, real thick, a lot thicker than a baseball bat. And as they slid down, a guard down there hit them in the back of the head and knocked them out. Oh, my goodness. I think they gave them gas in there. Yeah, yeah. And um, then uh, had an elevator up to the ground floor. And there... It, it was a huge oven. Best I can remember, I think it was eight on each side. And afterwards, I walked down this little hill. I looked back, and I thought, this is a factory of murder. How in the world could you explain something like that? Innocent people. The Jewish people are just like you and me. They love a good full stomach. They love their children, their family. They're no different than we are. Were you able to be of any help as a nurse when you got to the camp? Were there people who needed your services? Inside the camp? Yeah. No. Uh, well, I'm sure they were, but if that, they'd be very weak. Oh, every one of them, you wondered how they could even stand up and breathe. I've never seen such thin people. So you didn't really do much treatment at the no, camp? No, not inside there, no. They had 
cleaned it up pretty good. Well, you see, the people were anxious to get out that could, and the others, most of them were too weak or already gone. You left Europe in 1945. What do you remember about coming back to the United States? We were mighty thankful to get back to the States. And one of the things you'll probably be surprised at was the thing that impressed us so much as we looked out from the ship coming into the harbor. All the windows were in. We hadn't seen anything but all the buildings across Europe were all blown out. Oh, the fact that buildings had windows was such a different sight from what you'd seen. Well, that's true, because we hadn't seen them at all for the whole time. And we'd say, oh, look, look, there's no no uh, windows blown out. They all have glass in them. You had been so used to the war zone, you I forgot guess. what it looked like not to be in one. It was wonderful. Oh, how great it was to put our feet on American soil. Now, you'd expected to head to the Pacific. Yes. To treat soldiers fighting Japanese troops. Mm-hmm. But you never wound up going. Oh, no. We were some of the first troops that came home. And they said, the reason we're taking you home first is because you're seasoned troops. You know what's going on and you know how to work. Uh, so we're going to take you back to the States first and you'll have 30 days leave and in 30 days of more training because uh, working in the islands would be a lot different than going across Europe. Yeah, I imagine a whole host of different diseases, yeah. different issues. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. And then President Truman ordered the U.S. military to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. He did. That changed the course of the war and it changed your future. It sure did. And we were so thankful. I think for those who did not live through World mm-hmm. War II, it's hard to imagine uh, that you could find gratitude, I suppose, in the mm-hmm. dropping of the atomic bombs. Tell me about that. It was strange because they assigned each one of us to a camp close to our home to have our orders cut for a 30-day leave. And so I was sent to uh, Fort Bright, North Carolina. And uh, while we were sitting on the side of the track uh, in a troop train, we had stopped there. And some little boys came by, and they said, Hey, did you soldiers hear about that great big bomb that the U.S. dropped on Japan? We didn't believe them. We said, what do you mean? Oh, it was a great big bomb. One bomb would would, uh, annihilate a whole town. And we just laughed because we'd never heard of such thing. What did you think about these bombs that sounded like something out of science fiction but had actually been real? Well, of course, first it was just unbelief. But we found out it was true, and we were so thankful. They estimated our casualties at a million and a half. Hmm. So imagine a million and a half more casualties. That's what you focused on was the idea that so many more could die if the war continued. Right. Mm. Right. Did you continue being a nurse, Leela? Oh, yes. I'm even still a nurse today. I live in an old folks' home, and uh, it's surprising I've been retired for at least 40 years. And um, some of the 
people that lived there will come up and, oh, last night I had this and I couldn't sleep and the, they get, the doctor gave me these pills. Do you think that'll help me? <laughs> Once a nurse, always a nurse? Well, that's for sure. Yep. You speak about the war a lot these days. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing for younger people to understand? Well, I think to put it kind of in simple words, but it isn't simple. Freedom is not free. We paid a real high price for it, just like anybody that's in war. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I feel it's my honor to remind people of what our country's gone through. And I hope that I can impress a few how thankful we are that we're Americans. Leela Morrison of Windsor. She was a U.S. Army combat nurse during World War II. Morrison was honored Monday at age 96 with the French Legion of Honor medal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People love superheroes, but that love goes overboard in a new novel when someone decides to put on a cape and fight crime. Soon, real life begins to look like a comic book plot. Fort Collins author Megan Scott Mullen has written The Frame Up. It's the first in a series. And Megan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I wonder, first off, if deep down inside you wish someone would do this, take on the persona of a superhero and fight crime. Oh, definitely. I think that I wrote a book that I wish could be real life. <laughs> well, what do you think you'd like to see that person, that superhero, take on? Well, I don't, I don't know if I care so much what the crimes are. I would love... I, I think most people would love the chance to be their own hero and the costumes and the capes are just icing on the cake. If I could fight crime, make a good difference and look fabulous in spandex, I would not turn it down. (laughs) What do you think your superpower would be? You know, I actually I've had that question quite a bit in my interviews and I I think I'd like to be able to stop time. uh, Close tie with teleporting. Hmm. Superman used to, well, I guess Superman would turn back time by, like, flying counter-cyclical to the rotation of the Earth. How do you think you'd do it? Right. Right. I I think I'd actually like to just be able to, like, freeze frame. I think it's in a movie, even. Maybe Jumpers. I can't remember where. You can, like, change stuff around and then, like, you know, reset the time. And then people are really confused about, like, where their coffee went. I'd probably be that person. Okay. So in the book, this wannabe superhero mucks things up for the Los Angeles Police Department. And so they turn to a comic book writer for help. They figure she'll be able to shed some light. And her name, your protagonist, is Michael Grace Martin, 
also known as MG. And it's clear that she's had to develop a thick skin to be a woman in the graphic novel business. Will you just talk a little about that? Sure. Um, I come from several uh, creative fields myself. While I'm not a graphic novelist um, or an illustrator, I I have a really deep love for uh, illustrators. And um, a lot of her experiences come from my own personal experiences um, in my own fields, but I think that crosses lines really, really well. I think a lot of the creative fields or a lot of the um, male-dominated fields are extremely similar. Uh, so when I had this vision of this woman who would be my my leading lady, um, she came to me fully developed as a comic book artist, which was really interesting. Uh, I had to do a lot of research backwards after I decided what her job would be. And I listened to many, many interviews um, uh, from women comic book writers about what it was like to work in their industry. Hmm. And I never really set out to write like a feminist manifesto, but it would have been disingenuous to write this character in this really fun plot without touching on what she would have been going through personally. Um So I listened to a lot of really personal stories and mixed them with my own personal experiences. And I think what I'm so excited about is that I've gotten so many letters from readers who connect with where she's at in her career, with the the challenges that she faces. And then I'm really proud of the growth that she makes as a character um, in her approach to her career and where she's at over the three books. Can you give us a sense of something you faced as a woman or something you read about a woman facing that you integrated into the book? Um, I have been asked at multiple meetings to take notes simply because I was the only woman. Uh, I've been asked to get water, uh, to get food, to get coffee, um, even when I'm among peers, simply because I'm a woman. I think it's those small slights that end up piling up. I mean, I've had bigger ones, too, like um, I've had senior training people talk down to me, even though I have the same education as everyone in the room, uh, and try to explain things to me, assuming that because I'm a woman, I didn't understand the building industry or, um, you know, what I was educated about. And so it's those types of things, those small slights that MG deals with. Um, She's asked to get water. People in her meetings tell her she's too emotional, um, which she is a very emotional person, but um, it's something that I feel like a lot of women encounter. And I didn't want to write, again, a feminist manifesto, but I wanted to be genuine to what I had experienced and what she was experiencing and show a person's kind of navigating of that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Colorado author Megan Scott Mullen, whose novel, the first in a series, is called The Frame Up, and it is set in the world of uh, graphic novels and Comic-Cons and fandoms, and I understand the idea for it came to you in a (laughs) dream. Isn't that so cliche? It did. (laughs) (laughs) Cliche, and yet it's what a great story. It is. I woke up laughing and I told my husband uh, like I was laughing hard. I told my husband that I'd had a dream about my best friend, Christy, uh, chasing uh, 
a murderer through San Diego Comic-Con with a fleet of drag queens. She is a drag queen costume designer, so I had some insight there. And um, my husband was like, you should write a book about this. And I was like, no, it'll be ridiculous. And he said, I bet it'll be the one that finally sells. And uh, I guess I owe it all to him in the end because he did encourage me to write it. What do you think he saw in the story that you didn't? Um, you know, I think when we all start as writers, we want to write the next great American novel, something that is weighty and wins awards. And I didn't really understand the value of just a fun story. And I think as this has gained popularity, I really realized, and through letters that people have sent me, um, the world right now needs a little fun. And sure, there's some social commentary, but, um, Everyone needs a little bit of an escape now and then. And I think what my husband realized is that it was timely. It was fun. um, And I think I didn't realize how much the world needed fun. Megan Scott Mullen of Fort Collins has written The Frame Up, a new mystery novel about comic books, superheroes, and love. It's the first in a series. Thanks for being with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.